Ludo Martin's lecture on the 1937-1938 purges in the Soviet Union. Editor's note. The editor has taken the initiative to provide supplementary footnotes to links where Comrade Martin cites various books for comrades either interested in doing further reading or concerned with the reputability of the lecture material. Not everything was located, but for those concerned with any remaining uncited information in the lecture, the rest can most likely be found in Comrade Ludo Martin's book, Another View of Stalin. This lecture is in part based upon this very book. Good evening. Tonight I would like to introduce the theme of this lecture, the quote-unquote Great Purges in the Soviet Union that took place between 1937 and 1938, through four small remarks. First off, a few weeks ago in the most well-known progressive Flemish newspaper, there was a commentary from the editor concerning a letter from one of the Workers' Party of Belgium members. In this commentary, the editor talked about Stalin, and he states that Stalin was a quote-unquote paranoid dictator, that the Great Purges, which took place between 1934 and 1938, represented a wave of terror, and lastly, that under the pressure of the menace of war, Stalin had to quote-unquote curb his terror. So, a paranoid dictator, the Great Purges from 1934 and 1938, and in the face of the coming war, Stalin had to ease up on his terror. All of this was found in a quote-unquote progressive Flemish newspaper, Yet it very well could have been found in a right, or a far-right, newspaper. Three or four years ago, every day we had our share of information on the subject of the peoples of Eastern Europe fighting against the Stalinist terror in the name of democracy and liberty. Every week you could have read things in this sort in Time, Newsweek, if you like American news. Well, I'm not sure how many of you have seen last week's edition of Newsweek, but here we are, three years later, and they are reporting about the Russian Mafia. The journalist completed an extended report in Russia, noting that the Mafia reigned over St. Petersburg, that gangsters have permeated into business affairs and the government, that employees of all government sectors are controlled by the Mafia, that 70% of the police is corrupt, and that what works the best in the domain of capitalist dynamism are as follows. Prostitution, arms sales, and illegal exploration of raw materials. Next to a photo of the corpse of a man burned to death by the Mafia and left in a cemetery which the police discovered the following morning, the text reads as follows. When Western visitors see prosperous business in Russia, they have a tendency to see entrepreneurs. The Russians see criminals. Too often, the new markets are dominated by gangsters. Tens of thousands of corrupt businesses have joined forces with organized crime networks and fraudulently sell raw materials for billions of dollars. In the 1930s, Stalin often said that if opportunism were to develop in the party and take power in the party, capitalism would be restored in the Soviet Union. For our third piece of news, we have here the Franco-Belgian fascist newspaper Vouloir, managed by Robert Stukers, a Belgian fascist more well-known in France and the Soviet Union than in Belgium. Inside, there is an interview with Colonel Auxnes, who had his photograph on the front page of Standard two years ago, accompanied by the caption that this red colonel was in the process of plotting a Stalinist coup d'etat. Well, in this fascist newspaper, there is an interview with the same Auxnes who says, I essentially defend the idea of the state. The communist ideology no longer exists, and a new idea is crystallizing, the Russian idea. It is necessary to continue the geopolitical work of Peter the Great, continue the Tsarist Empire. I represent the rebirth of conservative thought in Russia, notably with Alexander Prokhanov. This is the leader of the National Salvation Front, whose political foundation is made up of the alliance of quote-unquote reds and whites, or, using language prevalent in Europe during the 1930s, neither left nor right. Well, in Auxnes's newspaper, there are interviews with French fascists, people from the Greek school, Robert Stokers, and several Russian fascists. 
In other words, just three years ago, there was the revolution for liberty and democracy, yet today we see manifesting essentially what Stalin was observing in the 1930s, that opportunism as a dominant force within the party will eventually bring about capitalist restoration. Even fascism and Tsarism are again becoming prevalent. Now for the fourth and final remark to introduce our main focus. In French, there's a researcher who published a dissertation concerning the Stalin-era purges. This was a Hungarian researcher named Gabor Tomas Rittersporn. This man is bourgeois anti-communist, yet in his dissertation he shows us that the information, or perhaps we should say disinformation, about the Soviet Union is so slanderous that it could be detrimental to the bourgeois ideology itself. Sooner or later, it would inevitably crumble. Rittersporn explained that what he wanted to accomplish with his dissertation was to show that the traditional representation of the Stalin era was highly inaccurate, and also to shed light on the extreme inconsistency of the literature dedicated to the quote-unquote Great Purge. Citing all the well-known authors considered specialists on the Soviet Union, Rittersporn states that all neglected to subject themselves to even the most elementary academic discipline in their analysis of their sources. He adds further that what is deemed as classic literature in the West is the kind that devotes itself more than anything to defending Western values and the kinds of ideological preconceptions that come with this defense. So there you have the four points that serve as an introduction to our main topic for today. The period of the purges in the Soviet Union during the 1930s, essentially from 1937 to 1938. The lecture will be split up into four main sections. The first one, concerns the class struggle that was going on within the Bolshevik party itself over the course of the 1920s and 1930s. Afterwards, I will briefly go over the struggle for a Leninist sense of direction at the heart of the party. Thirdly, we will discuss the struggle against enemy infiltration and against the revisionist political degeneration within the party. Fourthly, we will examine the purges themselves. Now, to expand more on the idea of class struggle being at the heart of the party, this subject is essentially the most talked about in the West in works that speak of quote-unquote totalitarianism in the Soviet Union, where there was a dictatorial party led by a dictator who indefinitely imposed his will upon the population. We have already shown that this characterization is nothing but ideology, nothing but a defense of bourgeois society totally unrelated to the concrete realities of the Soviet Union at the time. The reality of the party during the 1920s and 1930s was essentially that it was extremely weak, malfunctioning, divided, and even incapable of carrying out its own resolutions. The reason behind the situation can be very easily explained by the fact that the Bolshevik party at the time of the 1917 revolution had only 33,000 members. By the end of the Civil War in 1921, a civil war that shook the entire country, there were about 450,000 members in this country made up of 170 million people. With this kernel of a party, extremely restricted at its outset, it was nonetheless capable of leading gigantic revolutions in the course of the 1920s and 1930s, most notably the revolution that was collectivization, which totally changed the style of life and work of over 100 million peasants who just 10 years before were living as we here in Europe lived during the 1400s and the 1500s. There was also the Industrial Revolution, during which millions of peasants accustomed to the old way of working the land became skilled workers and learned how to manage modern industry. But, going back to class struggle being at the heart of the party, I would like to expand upon two points. Firstly, the party's political apparatus in the countryside, and secondly, the infiltration of enemy elements within the party, and the degeneration of these elements, specifically the cadres, from the party's very beginning. First of all, 
the party apparatus in the countryside. Generally speaking, the party certainly had a following in the major cities, but after the revolution and even after the civil war, in the countryside the party remained extremely weak. 70% of the population at the time lived in the countryside, and there were only three communists for every million of the country's inhabitants. In other words, overall the party's political and ideological influence was notably weak, as in the countryside there still remained the formerly wealthy people who knew how to read and were technicians, so they went on managing industry as before. Secondly, the collectivization movement in 1929 drastically changed the entire countryside. At the beginning of this movement, along with the start of industrialization, hundreds of thousands of people, especially newer workers, became members of the party. By 1931, the party membership amounted to be about 1.8 million. Many of these members, especially ones from the countryside, were politically illiterate. In other words, they never had any political education and knew very, very little. Because of this, these individuals were more often than not incapable of executing, let alone even understanding the decisions coming from the party leadership concerning collectivization, for example. In fact, there was a survey in the countryside between 32 to 60% of party members never read the party newspaper. Such results are a concrete indication of the political illiteracy widespread in the ranks of rural party members. It must also be noted that many peasants at the time who joined the party were rich ones, so the most well-off class in the countryside. Thirdly, in the countryside the party was extremely easy to infiltrate. To put things in perspective, someone who knew how to read, write, and count was an asset in the countryside, so pretty much anyone who possessed these technical capacities could very easily get accepted into the party. The party functionaries in charge of each region were always happy to have more or less competent members. Also. We must remember that there were kulaks who fled to the factories. They would work on a construction site for two years, for instance, and would then return to the villages as workers, very quickly rising to dominant positions in the disguise of workers and communists. This was a very standard practice for the kulaks, the former wealthy peasants, through which they camouflaged themselves and continued to maintain a grip on how society was run. Furthermore, there was next to no administration. Stifling bureaucracy is often spoke of, yet there was not even any paperwork. Members were not being registered. In light of this defective administration, membership cards were quite easy to find, so it was not uncommon for people to steal or purchase party membership cards. Fourthly, faced with a huge task of transformation in the countryside, the party was overwhelmed by administrative and economic tasks. The party as a means for political education was extremely weak in the countryside and the climate of this still very backwards area which clinged to traditional customs gained the upper hand over the party elites there. Out of this atmosphere arose bureaucracy, a mechanical manner of work, nepotism, people would let their friends and family in, and oftentimes despotism, as was well known for centuries in the countryside based on whoever held power. Fifthly, I will summarize Getty's conclusion. In the countryside the party was undisciplined, incompetent, fragmented, technically weak, often disorganized force, incapable of carrying out decisions. We have said it before, but just try to engage in totalitarianism with all of this. It remains a valid point. Moving on, within the party apparatus during the 1920s and 1930s, there was a substantial amount of infiltration and also a notable number of degenerate cadres and intellectuals in the party. All this constitutes the second aspect of the internal class struggle that the Bolshevik party was going through over the course of the 1920s and 1930s. I will describe four individuals from which we have very precise information and who represent various types of cadres and intellectuals within the party. To begin with, 
we will speak about a young intellectual cadre at the time of the revolution, then a military commander, then a quote-unquote old Bolshevik, and finally a young and educated man close to Stalin himself. We will start by examining a young intellectual who was 19 years old in 1917 and was born in Kiev. Some of you may already be familiar with a book he wrote in 1928 after having left the Soviet Union. It was called With Stalin in the Kremlin, and it was written by Boris Bazinov. What is particularly interesting about this book is that for those of you who are familiar with Russia, it has a photocopy of his nomination on August 8, 1923 as Stalin's secretary and also secretary of the Politburo. At the time of his nomination, Bazinov was 23 years old, and he took notes during all the Politburo meetings. In other words, he was aware of everything that was being said, what Lenin was saying, what Stalin was saying, what everyone was saying. In his book, written in 1928, he stated the following. The Bolsheviks seized power in 1919, sowing terror. To spit at them in their face would have only given me ten bullets. So I took another path. To save the elite of my city, I covered myself with the mask of communist ideology. Starting in 1920, the open struggle against the Bolshevik plague ended. To fight against it from the outside had become impossible. It had to be mined from within. A Trojan horse had to be infiltrated into the communist fortress. All the threads of the dictatorship converged in the single knot of the Politburo. The coup d'etat would have to come from there. So, at 19 years old, he enters into the party with the intention of hiding his true ideology, making it seem as though he is a communist, and attempts to destroy this party as quickly as possible. It is not a stretch to think that if this youngster from Kiev had these kinds of ideas, we can be sure that many youths from the bourgeois and feudal ranks, because it was these individuals who were educated and therefore the intellectuals, had these same class reflexes. Now for the second example a quote-unquote old Bolshevik, meaning someone who was already a party member before the revolution. His name is George Solomon, named in July 1919 Assistant to the People's Commissar for Commerce and Industry, in other words, Vice Minister of Commerce and Industry. He was an intimate friend of Krasin, one of the most well-known old Bolsheviks and also a minister. In the book, Solomon details a conversation that he had with Krasin, and he mentions that right before the October Revolution, both of them claimed that Lenin was engaged in the quote-unquote immediate installation of socialism, an imposed utopia, including the most extreme of stupidities. He continues writing that Lenin's line of annihilating the bourgeoisie was no less absurd. This bourgeoisie was destined to bring us many positive elements. So, this was Solomon's point of view at the time of the revolution. Then, the civil war happened, and it was still not clear which side was going to win. But when the Bolsheviks gained the upper hand, he stated the following. But Bolshevik power stabilized. A gradual change took place in our assessment of the situation. Should we not, in the interests of the people that we wanted to serve, give the Soviets our support and our experience in order to bring this task some sane elements? We could also oppose the total destruction of the bourgeoisie and bring about the restoration of normal diplomatic relations with the West. So, here you have an old Bolshevik who thinks exactly like the Mensheviks, who, during the Civil War, sided with the English. He goes on about how socialism was impossible in such a backwards country, the bourgeoisie still had a significant role to play, etc. 
Once the Bolsheviks had secured their victory, he stated that the opposing forces would try and re-enter the party to try and overthrow the Bolsheviks, to put an end to their plans. Thus, in Solomon's view, there were two options. One, to try and protect the bourgeoisie, and two, try and reconnect with countries in the West. This was a pro-bourgeois line from the inside and a pro-Western capitalist line on the outside. That was the second example. As for the third one, I will refer once more to Bazinov's book. Remember that this book came out in 1930, written between 1928 and 1930. It also addresses the question of military men in the Soviet Union. So now, I will go into what he tells us about Frunze, the head of the Red Army. When Trotsky was expelled and had to be replaced, Frunze took over his position as manager of the Red Army. Bazinov writes as follows about Frunze, whom he visited often. Quote, Frunze was perhaps the only man among the communist leaders who wished the liquidation of the regime and Russia's return to a more human existence. At the beginning of the revolution, Frunze was Bolshevik, but he entered the army and fell under the influence of old officers and generals. End quote. You must understand that the Red Army was essentially made up of former Tsarist generals, as these were the only ones who had any real experience in the field. So, in 1930, more than 10 years after the revolution, there were still 4,500 senior officers from the Tsarist era at the head of the Red Army. In other words, 10% of all senior officers. Bazinov continues, quote, But he knew how to shut up and hide his thoughts. He felt that his ambition was to replay in the future role of Napoleon. Frunze had a well-defined plan. He sought most of all to eliminate the party's power within the Red Army. To start with, he succeeded in abolishing the political commissars, which is true. Then, energetically following his plans for a Bonapartist coup d'etat, a coup d'etat was done during the French Revolution, so here, Bazinov is talking about a military coup d'etat during the Soviet Revolution. Quote, Frunze carefully chose for the various commander positions real military men in whom he could place his trust. Nevertheless, Stalin found him out. End quote. What is rather interesting is that here you can see an almost word-for-word -word description of what would be discussed in the Soviet Union concerning the Tukhachevsky affair. If Bazinov had written this book during the 1950s or 1960s, it could have been said that, well, he just made all this up because the Tukhachevsky affair already occurred, so he merely reused this. But this is not the case because the book came out in 1930. In any case, I'm not saying that what he explains about Frunze is true, I have no idea, and I do not know the whole story, nonetheless true or false. It is a concrete example that this very theme was still being discussed, and even if it was false in Frunze's case, it was a theme that truly did manifest later on as a military coup d'etat against the party. Now our fourth example. Perhaps you are familiar with Alexander Zinoviev. He is currently in Germany and has become a rather well-known author. In this book here, he talks about his childhood during the 1930s, 40s, 50s, etc. He explains that already at 17 years of age, he was a passionate anti-Stalinist, justifying the stance as being due to the fact that Quote, I could see the differences between the reality and the ideals of communism. End quote. This is a rather interesting point. From a literary perspective, this is known as petty bourgeois idealism, which is quite willing to accept communist ideals, but abstracts itself from social and economic reality, as well as from the international context under which the working class built socialism. 
petite bourgeois idealists reject communist ideals when they must face the bitterness of class struggle and the material difficulties they meet when building socialism. Zinoviev, as someone evidently fearful of these difficulties, comes to the conclusion that reality for him did not correspond to what he dreamed of as a quote-unquote communist. In the face of all of this, he explains that he became an anarchist. Reading Bakunin and all the other notable Russian anarchists, he explains that, quote, I was an individualist. When I was 17 years old, my preferred catchphrase was, I am my own Stalin, end quote. Modesty was not his strongest area. After the Stalin era, he modified it to be, quote unquote, I am my own state. Now, concerning his ideas during this time period, he notes at one point that, quote, the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat was nonsense. In the Soviet Union, there's a new class of exploiters, the civil servants. And if there are problems in the Soviet Union, they are caused by the system's own logic, end quote. In essence, he develops a classic manifesto that any bourgeois or anti-socialist could easily develop. Also interesting is that he notes on page 116, after Zinoviev, who was a brilliant student, entered a philosophy department in an elite school, quote, Upon entry, I understood that sooner or later I would have to join the Communist Party. I had no intention of openly expressing my convictions, I would only get myself in trouble. I had already chosen my course. I wanted to be a revolutionary struggling for a new society. I therefore decided to hide myself for a time and to hide my real nature from my entourage, except for a few intimate friends. End quote. He went on to become a philosophy professor and a teacher in the party schools. We have now discussed the four people who themselves testified how they evolved, four totally different individuals a military man, a youth in 1919, a youth in the 1930s, and an old Bolshevik. Now you understand that we are dealing with a party that at its outset had a few thousand intellectuals at the time of the 1917 revolution, a party that had to hastily recruit cadres and give them basic education. Manifestly, there were people who easily became familiar with the lessons and repeated them. But how was it possible to determine who was to do what? And who was who in such a situation? I believe that the four cases I outlined suffice to help you realize the difficulties concerning the internal class struggle within the party. Each person indicated that they were an anti-communist. They wanted to put an end to the system, that they would disseminate their intentions by combating the party from the inside. After having thoroughly analyzed the struggles and problems in the party, all the problems with the party apparatus in the countryside, and also the issues related to intellectual cadres, we will now discuss the struggle carried out during the ends of the 1920s and beginnings of the 1930s in order to have a truly communist sense of direction in the party. We will once more discuss the matter in four main points. The first thing that was done under these chaotic and incoherent circumstances was the development of an education program at a level that had never before been seen in the Soviet Union. As I previously mentioned, in 1930, there were about 1.8 million party members. But what is more is that in this same year, 1 million students registered for classes given by the party. We are not necessarily talking about exactly 1 million people, as some could have taken two classes, yet just three years later, in 1933, this number increased to 4.5 million individuals who enrolled in party-sponsored classes. 
But again, keep in mind that one student could have taken two, three, four classes in the same year. In the countryside, the majority of people who became party members had no idea about Russia's revolutionary past, not even any knowledge of the most elementary principles of Marxism. Nothing. And there were no materials either, something that was well understood by the peasants. Thus, in 1929, the book History of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and it was written by Yaroslavsky, an old Bolshevik and the most well-known historian of the party. It went all the way back to the party's beginning to about 1928-1929. It's very detailed, extremely well done, and still quite interesting to study. At the time of its publishing, it served as the educational foundation for new members and new committee leaders. The second measure undertaken by the party to stabilize its otherwise chaotic situation was the idea of regular purges of party members. Recall that in 1917 there were 33,000 members, but by 1921 that number had already increased to 580,000. In light of this, Lenin decided to commence the first purges, that is, an inspection of competency which was in fact introduced during the Civil War. During the Civil War, everyone fought. It was a question of life or death. Under these circumstances, the party desperately recruited members from the peasant masses in order to lead their struggles. What ended up happening was that, sure, someone could have fought very well against the Tsarist forces and could have been enthusiastic about becoming a party member, but as soon as the war died down, it became necessary to reevaluate who had been let in. Thus, the main objective of the purges was to verify if members were qualified to remain in the party or not. During these initial purges, 25% of the party members were expelled. Evidently, this was due to the fact that a great number of people were totally out of place in the party, who lacked any kind of familiarity with its ideology. Consequently, party membership fell to 450,000. By 1929, this number was well surpassed with party membership amounting to 1.5 million. Once again, it became necessary to embark on a new set of purges, but now under more rigorous criteria. During these purges, 11% of party membership lost their membership cards, but those who felt they deserved a second chance appealed their case, and 25% of these individuals who appealed were readmitted. In other words, the net result of this whole operation was in fact that only 8% of people had to hand over their membership cards. In terms of what made the second set of purges more precise, the party looked for members with a counter-revolutionary past. Those with a past as kulaks, those with a past as former Tsarist officers, and more broadly, those who embodied elements hostile to socialism. Secondly, members exhibiting corrupt elements were searched for, as this category of people typically joined the party above all for their own personal reasons. Thirdly, the party sought out members who had become inactive politically and therefore did not demonstrate their true dedication in the fight for socialism. Lastly, the party tried to single out members who had become criminals, sexual abusers, or drunkards. This final category was a veritable problem at the time. The third set of purges occurred in 1933, after the first major strides in collectivization and industrialization had been made. We already mentioned that in 1929, the party had about 1.5 million members. But just three years later, in 1932, the party already grew to 2.5 million, one million more new recruits. Thus, the new inspection began in 1933, and the goal was to finish by the end of the year. However, 
This time, there were so many difficulties that things dragged on all the way to 1935. This reality already began to expose the ineffectiveness of the process, as it was no longer possible to examine each party member and finish the process within six or seven months. Again, this time, things dragged on for almost three years. During these purges, it was also observed that instead of seriously inspecting people, many party secretaries simply began to expel those who weren't doing anything. In other words, passiveness became the most pressing criteria for expulsion. It is necessary to understand that this passiveness, more often than not, came from workers or peasants with many children, and so had legitimate reasons for being, as they were characterized, quote-unquote, inactive. On the other hand, those who were integral parts of the party apparatus had a much easier time making it seem like they were, quote-unquote, active in the party. In light of all this, it was during these purges that orders were enacted at the central level, stipulating that the regional secretaries who did not personally look after the inspection of members would be expelled from the party. It became apparent that the party elites in the countryside were not taking things very seriously. It should also be added that during these purges, 2,500 membership cards disappeared. During the examination at Leningrad, it was observed that 50% of members did not have their cards in order, meaning that they were either fabricated or invalid. Leningrad was not the end of the campaign, yet already in this city, half of members were non-compliant with the administrative orders, nor the simple rules stipulated by the party. Another thing we saw happen during the campaign from 1933 to 1935 was that the number of members who voluntarily left the party was about the same as that which had been expelled. 15% of members simply vanished. Such a phenomenon demonstrates that not only was the party disorganized, but there were many members who came and went. Notice how this image is strikingly different from that which is projected here in the West, a party which imposes its will with military discipline, etc. The third measure undertaken to correct that situation and to give this group of militants some more communist orientation was the campaigns to develop socialist democracy in the party. This point is very much worth studying, as it represents yet another contradiction with regards to the image most people have in their heads of the Stalin era. In December 1934, the Central Committee held a special meeting and aimed at mediating the problems of bureaucracy in the party often exemplified by the formalist and bureaucratic attitudes of many cadres towards the rank-and-file militants. They also noted how there were many regions in which real participation of the masses in party activities was limited as much as possible, activity and participation in the party being reserved for an isolated group of permanent functionaries, and the ability for the average members amongst the masses to engage in such things therefore being quite scarce. Thirdly, Criticism, and self-criticism, and especially criticism from the party's rank-and-file, was not systematically applied. Fourthly, many of the higher-ups in the party were not linked to these rank-and-file members, oftentimes not even being personally acquainted with the main party members in their region, and thus obscuring which elements were valid and revolutionary, and capable of taking on more important work in the party. The same points would be discussed in some speeches by Stalin that he delivered in March 1935. In June 1936, he would once again repeat almost word for word these same themes. We are told that Stalin was a quote-unquote dictator. Yet we see three or four times already that in long speeches he always returned to these points about the political system not being democratic enough, putting forth these very demands before the party. 
I would like to add another interesting point that's relevant to today's discussion. In February 1937, the Central Committee convened, the same meeting in which it was decided to embark on the so-called Great Purge. But on the agenda at this Central Committee meeting, there were several points, and the most important report, published immediately afterwards, was the one concerning problems related to democracy in the party. This was a long report delivered by Zdanov, in which he criticized the problems of bureaucracy in the party, the continued absence of political work and education, the absence of criticism and self-criticism, and the absence of responsibility within the leadership when addressing the party's rank and file. No elections for leadership were being held. The leadership was not submitting reports explaining their activities. These reports were not being openly discussed at the meetings. However, at the February 1937 Central Committee meeting, it was decided that multi-candidate general elections would be held within the party via secret ballot. It is very interesting to observe how the first time that this kind of party-wide initiative was undertaken was in February 1937. Yet, here in the West... This is the very moment that we are told the quote-unquote terror began. Now, the Smolensk archives were stolen by the Nazi army during the occupation, so they are now located at the Hoover Institute in the United States. In other words, all the party's documents, as well as the orders from the Central Committee concerning what leadership at Smolensk was to do, a large region located close to Poland, still exist and can be verified. They are very interesting to examine as you can concretely see everything that was being done and decided in a large region. Well, in the 1937 general elections, 50 to 55 percent out of all the lower and mid-level leadership was replaced. This was a major upheaval which, mind you, was realized through multi-candidate elections via secret ballot. At the regional leadership level, the elections as a whole were done in different stages. There was a general meeting of regional leaders at which they listened to a report from Ramianchev, who was the head. The minutes from the meeting exist. They run about 10 pages long. One page explains that his activity was approved, while the remaining nine pages consisted mostly of criticisms, which were rather thorough. We can see that these critiques were spewed out, but the political apparatus mastered the situation well enough to leave everything as it was before. We can also see exactly how this played out by examining the details at the level of the rank and file and the changes that occurred within, as well as the difficulties to change the leader. That was the third aspect in the effort to revolutionize the party. But the fourth point I would like to briefly touch on is on the political struggle in the party. There were various tendencies, most notably the opportunist ones, but I want to emphasize the idea that the political struggle was carried out correctly as will be demonstrated when we analyze the details, the varying positions, and the way in which they were treated. The first major campaign of debates and political struggle in the party was that which was spearheaded by Trotsky, beginning in 1923. These debates lasted from 1923 all the way up until 1927, 1928. You can see that these things were being discussed at great length in practically all the papers at the time. Notable is the fact that from this era, about 1924 to 1926, you can find very valuable writings from Bukharin, one of Trotsky's main rivals at the time. They are very well done and merit studying. Stalin also wrote at length on the subject, so his speeches and comments are also worth studying. In English, its published title is On the Opposition. The second struggle that took place was between Zinoviev and Kamenev, two party leaders known for initially being opposed to the October Revolution. 
although later on they were able to rejoin the party after it was evident that the revolution had been a success, at first, Lenin chastised them and expelled them from the party. Upon rejoining the party, Zinoviev and Kamenev sided with Trotsky's position on the question of socialism in one country. We have already discussed Trotsky's defeatist position on the matter, as his response to the question was definitely negative, as in his view, it was necessary to first wait for world revolution to occur. So, Zinoviev and Kamenev joined up with Trotsky during this campaign between 1926 and 1927 to form what was known as the quote-unquote united opposition. I will soon go into more detail, but for now I will mention that by the end, there were elections in the party in which the Trotskyites received only 2 to 2.5% of the votes. While Trotsky continued to defend his position, Zinoviev and Kamenev felt inclined to engage in self-criticism instead. Trotsky was eventually expelled from the party, exiled to Siberia, and eventually banished from the Soviet Union proper. Zinoviev and Kamenev were likely exiled in 1928, yet already in 1929 they were allowed to rejoin the party, and even regain the privilege of holding leadership positions. As a matter of fact, they continued upholding their same positions and struggling against the party during collectivization. By 1932, they were once more criticized and exiled, but permitted to return in 1934, the same year in which they were allowed to participate as delegates at the party congress. The third major struggle was with Bukharin, who defended the rich peasants, the kulaks, freedom of pricing in the countryside which resulted in more considerable profits for the rich peasants, and the idea that industrialization posed insurmountable problems and thus had to be slowed down. Again, we have already expanded on this issue. Bukharin was defeated politically. When collectivization had more or less succeeded by 1932 to 1933, he said that he was wrong. According to the analyses of the party at the time, Bukharin's positions would have led to the destruction of socialism. Since his theories favored rural bourgeoisie, if this bourgeoisie would have been able to develop as per Bukharin's plan, it would have led to the destruction of the socialist system. Thus, the criticisms towards Bukharin were extremely serious and profound. Nevertheless, Bukharin remained in the party's leadership. He was allowed to participate in the 17th Party Congress in 1934, but more significant is the fact that he remained a member of the Central Committee, making him one of the principal ideologues during 1934 to 1936. What must be noted is that by 1933, the most fierce struggles had already passed. Collectivization and industrialization had by and large been accomplished, and the first five-year plan was an undreamt of success. So the general sentiment was that the hardest part was already over with. For instance, in May 1933, there was an order from the Central Committee delivered by Molotov and Stalin stipulating that of the kulaks who had been sent to camps, half of them were to be released. This demonstrates that their influence was no longer feared. So according to the party leadership, the repressive measures that had been taken against them were no longer necessary to maintain the stability of the proletarian dictatorship. We must especially be aware of the fact that at the 17th Party Congress that took place in 1934, all the foremost oppositionary forces were present and made speeches. All the Trotskyists, as well as proponents of Zinoviev, Kamenev, and Bukharin, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Bukharin, Pietikov, Radek, Smirnov, Prebozensky, themselves all personally spoke. So all the main leaders of struggles which had already been denounced for their harmful politics. 
In spite of all of this, we see that the party not only still accepted them, but even kept many in leadership positions. Once the major struggle had been waged, it was thought that everybody had been able to understand the falseness of their positions, as well as the correct positions, which had by this point already been proved through practice. It can be said that in the party, the general sentiment existed that there was a newfound unity, as experience had proved which was the correct path and to move forth with socialist construction. And the 1934 Party Congress was essentially the epitome of this sentiment. Now for the third major point, the struggle against enemy infiltration and degeneration within the party. At this point, we are tasked with addressing the subject of the Great Purges, proper from 1937 to 1938. But first, we shall examine the events that preceded them. I feel that with the two major points we have already discussed, this helps give further context in terms of the struggles which we shall now describe. A few months after the 14th Party Congress, whose title was Congress of Victory, not to mention that of quote-unquote unity, the party's number two, Sergei Kirov, was assassinated in his office at the party headquarters in Leningrad. Not assassinated in the street, but we are talking about a guy who entered the central building, climbed the stairs, and got killed in his very office. This transpired in December 1934. It would not be until 1953, during the Cold War, when people started to claim that Kirov was assassinated at the behest of Stalin. Historically, this was not a position that was normally upheld in the West. It was originally drawn up in counter-revolutionary circles in Russia, but never in the West. Only after Orlov defected to the West mid-Cold War in 1953 did it really start to circulate. This narrative maintained that Kirov was a moderate, opposed to Stalin, so for this reason Stalin had him killed. I strongly urge you all to consult Getty's book, which we have already referenced, Origins of the Great Purges, in which there is an entire chapter dedicated to the Kirov affair. He notes that far from being a quote-unquote moderate, Kirov's views tended to either coincide directly with those of Stalin, or sometimes be even more severe than Stalin's. This alone serves as a refutation to Orlov's tale. Secondly, Tokiev, the anti-communist who defected to the West in 1948, is on record as personally being involved with Kirov's assassination, along with various other groups. Thirdly, there was another person who defected to the West by the name of Luskov, who made the same claims. By 1948, these people in theory should have been more interested in asserting that Stalin was the real criminal, yet we find that they say, no, we know very well the group who was responsible, we were involved, etc., Getty further analyzes the events following Kirov's assassination. He states that a reaction of total panic immediately seized upon the party because the fact that some individuals knew how to kill the party's number two in his very office constituted a more than serious menace for the regime as a whole. Consequently, the party enacted an exceptional law countering the coup d'etat, being unaware of the extent to which it had already progressed. Secondly, he notes how repression was first and foremost carried upon the former members of the White Army, the former anti-communists from the Tsarist era. In other words, in the days directly following the affair, it was originally thought that this group was the foremost propagator of reaction. 
Then, it was found out that Kirov's actual assassin was a guy named Nikolaevsky. His diary was located, though inside nothing substantial was found, no other people mentioned, nothing about what exactly he was doing. In light of this, Getty alleges that if this was a whole thing arranged by Stalin to deal blows on others, he would have created a diary that was at least a little more useful than the one that procured no leads to follow at all. In any case, it was concluded that on December 18th, Nikolaevsky had been frequenting groups associated with Zinoviev in Leningrad. Zinoviev was interrogated, and it was assumed that these two individuals were associated with the same circles. However, no link was found between Zinoviev and his group, and Nikolaevsky himself. At this time, Zinoviev was once again exiled, but no more progress could be made on the matter, and things remained as such for the next 18 months. Getty notes that when the affair is studied, it is clear that this was a coup that took the party totally by surprise. Nobody had anything prepared because none of the leads were leading to anything, and thus it was abundantly clear that the party was completely caught off guard and had no idea how to react, in which direction to strike, or even what to look for. After Kirov's assassination, there was neither a great purge nor a large-scale repression. On the contrary, his assassination was followed by a sweeping campaign promoting socialist democracy. It was around this time that discussions were being had concerning the new constitution. Upon consulting the press, the event which dominated the political landscape at the time was not purges, but rather the discussion of the new constitution. Eighteen months later, the Kirov case was reopened due to claims that new elements had been discovered since 1934, thus reopening Zinoviev's case as well. What was the newfound important fact? Well, it was discovered that in 1932, a clandestine organization was created that included Trotsky and his people on the outside, and Zinoviev Kamenev and their people on the interior. There was concrete proof that Smirnov, a guy in the Central Committee, and another named Gautzen went to Berlin, participated in negotiations with Trotsky's son, Setov, whom they brought analyses of the Soviet Union, which Trotsky would publish in his bulletin and themselves participated in clandestine Trotskyist activities. This is also confirmed to this very day by Trotskyists. Trotsky's archives were accessible, and inside you can find confirmations on everything that I've just laid out. For instance, letters from Setov to Trotsky, in which he says that the bloc was formed of so-and-so, so-and-so, and so on. In other words, this is a matter no longer under discussion. What is perhaps important to mention is to understand what exactly Trotsky represented from 1934 to 1935. To accomplish this, I will highlight a few of his public writings. I do not mean his clandestine orders, arrangements by conspirators, etc., but only what Trotsky himself published in the press between 1934 and 1935. In other words, before the Moscow trials, he states that, quote, Hitler's victory was provoked by the contemptible and criminal politics of the common turn. Without Stalin, Hitler would never have been victorious. End quote. In summary, Stalin is responsible for Hitler. If there is fascism, it is due to communism. He continues, quote, To overthrow Hitler, the common turn must be done away with. End quote. So, in order to destroy fascism, the international communist movement must first be destroyed. 
For those of you in university, you understand that the Trotskyists claim that the communists did not create a proper united front, that the communists should have created a united front with the total inclusion of social democrats, and together they would have easily stopped the fascists. Of course, there are other reasons for which all of this is false, but when you have people nowadays who tell you and defend these sort of things like, to destroy Hitler, the communist parties first must be destroyed, you understand very well that this kind of talk is totally hypocritical. It is somehow very difficult to find this clever united front, which they supposedly hold the secret to, all while claiming that the dissolution of the communist parties was a necessary first step in defeating Hitler. Then, Trotsky continues and stated in 1934 that, quote, Soviet bureaucracy has appropriated numerous features of victorious fascism. End quote. He also said that, quote, Stalin is the living incarnation of counter-revolution. Between his hands, terror was destined to crush the party, the unions, and the Soviets. End quote. Let us try to wrap our heads around this. Stalin and the party have supposedly destroyed the Communist Party, the unions, and the Soviets. Trotsky published his work abroad, oftentimes in Paris, yet his bulletins clandestinely found their way into the Soviet Union, usually through existing links that he had created with Zinoviev, Kamenev, Smirnov, and the others. In another text from 1935, Trotsky notes that, quote, all of Stalin's wrongdoing provoked exasperation, hate, and the spirit of vengeance. This atmosphere necessarily engenders dispositions towards individual terror in young people. End quote. In another one of his texts, he explains how it was of utmost necessity to carry out work in a conspiratorial manner. Imagine being a professional conspirator and wanting to tell people that they must incite terror. You will not find any better formulas than those found in Trotsky's bulletins. He was calling for individual terror to be inflicted upon Stalin and other party members in a very thinly veiled manner. In the same text, he continues, quote, The proletariat which carried out three revolutions will once again raise its head. Bureaucratic absurdity will not stop resisting. The proletariat shall come up with sufficient maneuvers, and we shall help them. End quote. Of course, Trotsky here is referencing the 1905 revolution, which was an armed insurrection against the Tsar, the February revolution of 1917, which was the second revolution, and finally, the October revolution of 1917, which was the socialist revolution. This is what Trotsky has in mind, to encourage the masses to do it again, and personally help them in their efforts. Understand the significance of all this. Firstly, the thinly veiled calls for individual terror, and secondly, insurrectionary demands to overthrow the regime. In light of all of this, take a party elite like Zinoviev, who spent several years engaged in ideological struggles. When he started getting mixed up with Trotsky, whose positions were so blatantly obvious, there was no question about what his true intentions were. It became obvious to the Bolsheviks as well who proceeded accordingly in exposing these wolves in sheep's clothing. Thus, Zinoviev and Kamenev were tried in 1936 and sentenced to death, although keep in mind that the repressions that were going on at this time only were being dealt upon Zinovivists and Kamenevists, who were already outcasts within the party. These weren't the kinds of people who had far-reaching influence in the party, 
On the contrary, they were fringe and had faced expulsion in the past. Around this time, the Bolsheviks' chief of security, who was head of the NKVD, was Yagoda, so it was primarily he who was responsible for directing all the security operations. It must be noted that there were Bolsheviks who felt that what was going on was not quite right. For instance, two of Trotsky's secretaries in their memoirs detailed that Mark Swarovski, the deputy of Sedov, Trotsky's son, had been working for the Soviet authorities. There are several indications that normally Yagoda was supposed to be receiving reports which detailed everything Sedov was in the process of doing against the Soviet Union since 1932. Some people found it rather strange that there were people who were close with Sedov, yet it would be a two-year-long wait before they were discovered. There was also Yezov, who was responsible for the organization of the party. He was a Bolshevik of worker origins who had participated in the October Revolution and also Yagoda's assistant. Ultimately, though, it was Yagoda who directed Zinoviev's trial, and those interrogated were consequently only the Zinovievists. A brief refresher on what we have just gone over. First, we discussed Kirov's assassination, the 18 months in which nothing really happens, the Trotsky-Zinoviev conspiracy is discovered and a subsequent trial in which the Zinovievists were eliminated. Hardly a month later, a series of attacks transpired in the Siberian mines, leaving 12 workers dead. This happened to be the second series of attacks in a period of nine months, so the conclusion was that things were demonstrably getting out of hand, and control was being lost. Under these circumstances, Yagoda was removed from his position as head of the NKVD and became Commissar of Communications, while his assistant Yezov took over the investigations concerning what transpired in the Siberian mines. In these mines, there was copper, gold, etc. The majority of the Soviet Union's rich mineral deposits were located in Siberia. This brings us to the trial of the Vice Minister of Heavy Industry, in other words, the person responsible for what was going on in the mines. This was, evidently, Piotakov, the most well-known Trotskyist who remained in the Soviet Union, who performed the necessary self-criticism, who was readmitted back into the party and rose through the ranks and became vice minister of by far the most important industry in the Soviet Union. Defense was heavily reliant on heavy industry. In other words, we are talking about one of the most strategic positions in the country at the time. Returning to the subject of his trial, this was the second formal trial dealing with the persecution of Trotskyists, and we shall now consult some rather interesting texts to understand the context and better digest what transpired. In a nutshell, Piotakov was accused of being responsible for the sabotage and attacks that occurred in the mines. When you read the commentary from the press in our country, they go on about how all of this was falsified, it was all rigged so as to eliminate political opponents, and so on. Well, on this subject, there is an extremely interesting book from an American engineer who, as a matter of fact, worked in all of the Siberian mines from 1928 to 1937, if I'm not mistaken. Notably, he discusses how he was the head engineer at the Kalata mines. When he arrived, the mines were in complete disarray, and there were American engineers there who didn't have any work to do. For some context... It is worth it to point out that hundreds and hundreds of American engineers went to work in the Soviet Union during the 1930s, along with some French and German ones. They received very generous salaries, as at the time, the Soviet Union itself was not capable of producing enough skilled technicians of this sort. 
These American engineers compiled their reports in English, yet nobody took the initiative to translate them. Because of this, for two years they had been stuck there with basically nothing to do. Well, the original engineer we mentioned, Littleman, received instructions directly from the Central Committee and was accompanied by a communist who knew nothing about the mines but nonetheless was a dedicated comrade. In just six months, they were able to restore order to the mines. Not only was Littleman able to train Soviet engineers, but he also mobilized the American engineers who were already there. By the end of the six-month period, mine production had already doubled from what it was before. All the technical rules were carefully explained, and then, once in check, Littleman would leave these mines for other mines facing similar calamities. This was how he was able to visit pretty much all of them, not only in Siberia, but in Kazakhstan as well. Barely over a year later, he was called back to the ministry and it was explained to him that catastrophe had once again ensued at the Kalata mine. After Littleman arrived, he discovered that as soon as he had left the previous time, all the engineers that he had helped train were fired and expelled from the mine. The American engineers had been sent back to the United States. All the rules and regulations that he had helped establish were contradicted in every instance. In light of all of this, he notes that it was so obviously clear that it was sabotage that he considered simply leaving the country himself. It was the minister who stopped him from doing so, and told him that first and foremost Littleman at least had to help uncover what had really transpired. In the end, the new director and remaining engineers in the mine were tried and all given 10-year sentences. But, in his book, Littleman notes that to him, it was not these individuals who were guilty. In his view, it was impossible after all that he had helped cultivate in this mine and for two months later to have it all eliminated, to have people doing the contrary of everything he recommended. Thus, he concluded that this effect must have been coming from something higher up. Furthermore, he concluded that the leadership of the Urals must have had some kind of knowledge about what transpired. These kinds of stories he recites three different times in his book, all in different minds. Thus, his general impression was that he was totally convinced that there was deliberate sabotage going on, stemming from the higher echelons in the party. Well, during Piatakov's trial, one of the deputies who was tried and sentenced was fittingly the secretary of the party committee in the Urals, Kabatov. In his book, Littleman notes how Kabatov was a kind of provincial director. Nobody really controlled him, and in general this tended to happen with the people who directed the more remote provinces of the Soviet Union, as happens in France, Belgium, and other European countries. That is to say, the control that Moscow had the ability to assert on these provincial leaders was extremely weak. In his book, Littleman gives another extremely interesting example. By chance, he happened to be in Berlin in 1931, where, at the time, a mission was being carried out under the direction of Piatakov himself, who, reminder, was the vice minister of heavy industry. He was purchasing machines for the mines. As Littleman was one of the most well-known specialists in the field, he received a telegram inviting him to be a member of the delegation. This is how he ended up in Berlin, and by the time he arrived, the arrangements had already been drafted. However, he observed that some of the things which were being bought were totally erroneous. Littleman notes how the wrong materials were going to be purchased at prices far too high, and furthermore, none of this corresponded with the original stipulations. Thus, in an effort to convince the delegation that this transaction could not take place, Littleman then and there outlined all the incongruities on a piece of paper. In the end, this purchase did not end up being finalized. He notes further in his book that at the beginning, 
he had the impression that a bribe was taking place. But upon further reflection, when he saw all the high society that was present, it seemed like too rudimentary of an explanation. Well, during Piotrkov's trials, Piotrkov stated before the court that in Berlin 1931, he had an arrangement with Sedov, the leader of the Trotskyists in Europe, which stipulated that the materials had to be purchased from two designated firms, and in turn, these firms would contribute a substantial commission to the Trotskyist movement. It was in this fashion that Trotskyite activities were being funded in the Soviet Union. Littleman, the American engineer, stated that while many people claimed that none of this could have been possible, when he read the minutes from the trial, he affirmed that on this subject matter, especially due to the fact that he was an eyewitness in Berlin, the explanation given by Piotrkov was the only plausible one for what he had witnessed. Briefly, there exists another book by a different American engineer, Scott, who spent some time in the well-known Magnitogorsk mines. He, too, describes his experience as an engineer working in the mines and what kinds of organized sabotage took place in Magnitogorsk. This book in particular is notable due to the fact that he details how many kulaks proletarianized themselves, carrying out deliberate class struggle in the mines via sabotage. There were quite a few of these former kulaks, and these were the kinds of people who would participate in sabotage whenever the opportunity presented itself. By this point with Piotrkov, we see that things were already getting more vulnerable for the regime. Zinoviev's case concerned primarily more petty internal party affairs, but Piotrkov was a significant figure in the crucial field of industry. In other words, the central state apparatus was already being manifestly disrupted. Furthermore, there was obviously something rotten in the party. After the 1934 Congress, the Victory Congress, a deceased degree of vigilance was beginning to produce grave issues. Thus, as we have already mentioned, the Central Committee convened in February 1937, directly following Piotrkov's trials. It was at this very meeting that the decision was made concerning the necessity of a purge in the party and in the governmental organs in accordance with the looming war on the horizon with the fascists. This is precisely the moment when things start to get quite interesting, and it is absolutely necessary to understand what occurred during this meeting. This is when bourgeois scholars claim the terror commenced. I encourage everyone to read Stalin's reports that he produced in relation to this meeting, at its beginning and end. I am totally convinced that everyone will be extremely surprised by what Stalin actually said, because based on the mainstream accounts and analyses, there exists a definitive conception concerning what Stalin must have decided at the beginning of the quote-unquote Great Purge. Yet, this image in no way corresponds to the main subject matter of the discussions that were had. The meeting's minutes were published in the brochure, Man, the Most Valuable Capital, but the title of his speech is Mastering Bolshevism. This is a compilation of the two speeches that Stalin gave at the beginning and end of the 1937 Central Committee meeting on March 3rd and March 5th, respectively. I will now summarize what is found inside, but evidently the contents in their entirety are a thousand times more extensive. First off, Stalin notes how there were three observations that could be made, which were essential in the situation at that time following Piotrkov's trials. Quote, First, the wrecking and diversive spying work of the agents of foreign countries, among whom the Trotskyites played an active enough role, affected to some degree or other all or almost all of our organizations, both economic, administrative, and party. Second, 
the agents of foreign countries among the Trotskyites penetrated not only into the lower organizations, but also into some responsible positions. Third, some of our leading comrades, both in the center and in the localities, were not only unable to recognize the real faces of these wreckers, diversionists, spies, and murderers, but they were so careless, complacent, and naive that not infrequently they themselves assisted the agents of foreign powers to get into various responsible positions. End quote. He continues, noting how Kirov's assassination represented the first warning. Then there were the trials concerning Zinoviev in which it became apparent that the Trotskyists and Zinovievists were conspiring to unite elements antagonistic to Soviet power. Yet, despite all this knowledge, vigilance was not sufficiently heightened. In terms of what caused this attitude, Stalin notes that first and foremost, the totally unexpected economic successes made many comrades quote-unquote dizzy with success further giving away to an air of political carelessness. Secondly, he determined that in light of all these economic successes, many party members and cadres lost sight of the phenomenon of capitalist encirclement that the Soviet Union was still faced with. In other words, the dangers and weight of potential wars due to this precarious position remained, no matter how successful things were economically. And thirdly, Stalin observed that many cadres were bogged down in menial, everyday questions, thus producing the effect of them not being fully aware of the greater and concrete class struggle that was still unfolding in the Soviet Union. In terms of how to repair these issues, Stalin proposed two potential solutions, the first of which being that political credulity, naivety, and carelessness had to be ruthlessly criticized. In other words, re-establishing the fact that as a revolutionary, one must remain perpetually vigilant and never let their guard down. Furthermore, Stalin also explained that as a world war was approaching, the former exploitative classes, which remained but were in hiding, would resort to more and more intense means through which to sabotage the state apparatus from the inside. Their numerical weakness had nothing to do with the fact that that would inevitably find more keen and sharp ways to continue carrying out sabotage. Understand that sabotage and individual terror are not necessarily the same. Kirov's assassination was an example of individual terror, while sabotage could be used to describe what was going on in the mines. Stalin's second conclusion was that the party's political education had to be reinforced. Perhaps this will surprise you, but his justification was that since political education was the foundation for vigilance, the former had to be reinforced in order to really achieve the latter. Thus, he motioned to establish training courses meant for all cadres in the party, from leaders of small worker circles all the way up in the central committee. This intensive training program was supposed to take between four and eight months, which required all cadres to come up with one or two substitutes in order to be able to leave their posts for such an extended period of time. Such was the major idea Stalin proposed to address the problem of lacking vigilance. After his speech, there was of course deliberation and discussion, but at the end of the session, Stalin returned to deliver his conclusions, which of course are also extremely fascinating. The first conclusion at which he arrived was that in the Central Committee, it was necessary to discuss and struggle so that people would once more be vigilant. But once this goal had been accomplished, certain people decided to take things too far, exercising quote-unquote vigilance in exaggerated and absurd ways. In light of this extreme behavior, Stalin added that it was wrong to start attacking people who in the past had only slightly wavered towards Trotskyism. 
Rather, those who had to be criticized and exposed consisted of people directly involved with Trotsky's conspiracy and those who in the past regularly passed through the same channels as Trotskyists. In Stalin's view, the more extreme approach would only be detrimental in the real fight against German agents and saboteurs. He further highlighted that among those present at the Central Committee meeting, which in theory was made up of some of the best and most experienced comrades, some had probably been influenced by Trotskyism or had partaken in Trotskyist activities in the past, but nonetheless these kinds of comrades were considered even more valuable than ones who had never flirted with Trotskyism. Due to this inside perspective, they knew how to fight against it. Is it apparent enough by now how polarly opposite all of Stalin's comments are in this speech to what people normally imagine Stalin's intervention at the beginning of the Great Purge to be? We are of the opinion that he was correct in pointing out the necessity of vigilance and of purging as a concept, and furthermore, that the purging had to be done in a principled manner, emphasizing that any excesses would only serve to do the enemy's work for them. Stalin's second conclusion in his report dealt entirely with the struggle against bureaucracy in the party. He notes how in the party a nepotistic tendency started to take root. In other words, when people had to be appointed to positions, there was a tendency to appoint first and foremost friends, acquaintances, people from the same region. Stalin explains, quote, The militants are chosen according to fortuitous, subjective, and petty criteria. People have been appointing their acquaintances, friends of friends, men personally devoted to the art of exalting their superiors, end quote. Stalin furthermore repeats what he had already been saying for three or four years against the bureaucratization of the party. Absence of criticism and self-criticism, absence of influence from the rank and file on the actions of party leaders, leaders who were not even personally acquainted with whom they were supposedly in charge of, sometimes not even being able to put faces to names. To quote Stalin directly, Some of our leaders have suffered from a lack of attention to real people. They do not go out of their ways to become acquainted with party members. They fail to consider individual factors. They usually act at random. Only people fundamentally hostile to the party would treat fellow party members in this way. End quote. In essence, what Stalin is getting at here is that such levels of gross bureaucracy were elements hostile to the party, elements that jeopardized the very existence of the party itself. Now, we have adequately examined Stalin's intended direction with regards to the Great Purge, in accordance with the looming war. It was after this 1937 Central Committee meeting that Bukharin was to be arrested, marking the third major trial and the fourth phase of internal class struggle in the party, the last of this intense period. Our interest in this matter might be labeled as criticism and the struggle against Bukharinist positions. Bukharin's case is without a doubt the most interesting to analyze. Normally, he is the most controversial figure that gets discussed in this time period, and for that matter, people typically know the least about him. Ideologically speaking, Bukharin was the number two in the party during the 1920s, as during this time it was he and Stalin who were the primary figures leading the struggles against the Trotskyists. It was only when Bukharin voiced his opposition to the collectivization of agriculture that he began to lose his status, allowing Kirov to come into the foreground, along with Kaganovich, Molotov, and others. Nonetheless, Bukharin remained one of the most well-respected old Bolsheviks. In light of all of this, I will presently set out to detail Bukharin's political development from the beginning of the 1930s all the way up until 1936. First off, there was the Ryutin affair. 
Ryutin was the party secretary in Moscow, who in 1932 wrote a roughly 200-page book that was probably the very first openly and comprehensive counter-revolutionary work by a party member. I will thus be directly citing the theories laid out in this work so that we can grasp exactly what is to be talked about here. He states the following, quote, Our dictatorship of the proletariat will inevitably perish under the direction of Stalin and his clique. By eliminating Stalin, we would have a much greater chance at ensuring the proletarian dictatorship's survival. What must be done? 1. Liquidate the dictatorship of Stalin and his clique. 2. Replace all the leadership of the party apparatus. 3. Immediately convene a special congress. End quote. For those of you who followed the recent series of counter-revolution in Eastern Europe, you can clearly see that the exact same techniques were being used. Take what happened in East Germany, for instance, and what happened to Honecker, who was no revolutionary but still defended certain socialist principles. The way in which he was removed, first by Krenz, then by right-wing forces, and a year after that, everything was swept away. Point by point, the same thing. Honecker and the Politburo were first done away with. All the party leadership was then replaced. And finally, a special congress was convened. In both cases, opportunist and rightist forces united to try and take power. But after that, Rutan notes, dissolution of all the collective farms created by force. Secondly, regulation of land use by private properties. Thirdly, the return of land to these owners for an extended period. Here you have a blatantly pro-private property and pro-capitalist program for the countryside, stated for a matter of fact much more crudely than Bukharin, who never entirely said the same thing. You see, Bukharin never formally allied himself with Ryutin, as the latter's positions were too flagrant. By 1932, half of the peasantry was already participating in collectivization, so to make demands for a return to private property was in a sense to drag down all the economic and political forces in the countryside attempting to move forward towards socialism. But what's important to note here is that there were four young Bukharinists who teamed up with Ryutin. These were young intellectuals, a product of Bukharin's role as a professor at the party school. Well, the four principal young Bukharinists were also directly affiliated with Rutin, so in this case, it is possible to see the link between the more vague, quasi-opportunist positions of Bukharin and the more extreme, openly opportunist positions of Rutin. Second point, there was an American, Stephen Cohen, who wrote a very important biography on Bukharin in the 1970s. In this biography, Cohen essentially defends Bukharin's political positions, especially in opposition to those held by Stalin. This is what Cohen says, quote, It was evident to Bukharin that the party and the country were entering a new period of uncertainty, but also of possible changes in Soviet domestic and foreign policy. To participate in and influence events, he, too, had to adhere to the facade of unanimity and uncritical acceptance of Stalin's past leadership, behind which the muted struggle over the country's future course was to be waged. End quote. This is precisely his interpretation. The Bukharin, already in 1931-1932, rejoined the party, accepted that the party line on collectivization was correct, yet... The only reason he did this was because he understood that the world situation was changing, as was the party's. Above all, his main objective was to continue this masked struggle and learn how to more effectively fight against the Leninist leadership in the process. Third point, 
Bukharin was the editor-in-chief of Izvestia, beginning, if I'm not mistaken, in 1933. Pravda was the first Bolshevik newspaper, but then afterwards came Izvestia. In terms of ideological influence, especially concerning the party's rank and file, these kinds of papers were extremely important. Consequently, in terms of developing political ideas in the paper, those of Bukharin had tremendous influence. At the beginning of 1934, the fascists rose to power in Germany, and in Izvestia, Bukharin took the initiative to write many articles on the topic of the new fascist danger and how Soviets were going to defend themselves in light of the impending fascist offensive. Understand that Bukharin's conviction was that the fascists, without a doubt, were sooner or later going to go to war with the Soviet Union. So the primary question he was concerned with was what policy to follow in order to be able to defend the country. For Bukharin, the number one thing was to eliminate the peasantry's quote-unquote enormous discontent. Secondly, he proclaimed that a prosperous, joyful, material, and spiritual life was necessary, as well as, quote, freedom of maximal development for the greatest number, end quote. Thirdly, he emphasized the need to reform and, quote, unquote, democratize the socialist regime, adding that we must oppose the pathology of an outrageous class struggle. What can we take from all this? We must answer frankly and reflect upon the true meaning of the words he says. For Bukharin, the fascist menace was merely an excuse for him to revert back to his opportunist ideas that he had held in 1929, effectively beginning a new struggle for the same ideas. He speaks of eliminating the peasants' discontent in 1934. By 1934, collectivization had been achieved. In other words, the only mass discontent that remained among the peasantry would have been that of the kulaks, whose paradise was taken from them. So Bukharin, in 1934, was essentially making concessions to the kulaks. To back up what I'm saying, let us have a look at Alexander Zinoviev's book, which, remember, is the perspective of a fierce anti-communist coming from a wealthy family in the countryside. Well, in this book, when Zinoviev asks his mother what she would do if the collective farms were done away with and private property was reintroduced as it was before, she responded that she would never accept. He discussed the same manner with others in the village, and they all produced similar responses. In other words, the struggle for collectivization experienced the most difficulty around 1930 and 1931. However, as soon as the peasants witnessed that with the introduction of machines and the modernization of the countryside, life was getting better for them, and production was able to increase, the majority of people moved over to the side of the collective farms. Even the worst enemies of communism are forced to admit this. For instance, Tokayev, author of Comrade X, says the very same thing in his book. Well, with all this context now, when you hear Bukharin advocating for eliminating the peasants' discontent, it is plainly clear that this amounts to a concession to the defeated kulaks. Now, to address the prosperous and joyful material and spiritual life, freedom of maximal development for the greatest number, line. What is this supposed to mean? Well, these are about the same terms that Khrushchev adopted when he rose to power. But who was Bakarin addressing here? First off, in 1934 to 1935, the Soviet Union simply could not guarantee a prosperous and joyful material and spiritual life, for all because, one, the country as a whole was still developing and was too poor, and two, 
If it was to take the fascist threat seriously, the majority of its energy and forces had to be invested in preparation for war. If one were to agree with this latter point, it is blatantly clear that the improvement of living standards could not be so prioritized. In terms of understanding the world content at this time, here, Bukharin was addressing the technocrats and the intellectuals who already had comfortable living conditions and who had desired even more of this comfort. As a political strategy, it is evident that there were already divergences at the class level, and Khrushchev did exactly the same thing. He broadly promised well-being, yet who did he guarantee this well-being to? Precisely the technocrats and the intellectuals, who did in fact have the situations improved under Khrushchev and under Brezhnev too. And at the same time, the possibility for the masses to influence decisions concerning the fate of the country began to degrade until it no longer really existed. Concerning Bukharin's intent on quote-unquote democratizing society, this was a direct invitation to opening up channels for reformists to express themselves and their dissent. In fact, it was in the political arena that the emerging class of intellectuals and bureaucrats increasingly had the ability to express themselves, demanding for a modification of the firmly socialist direction in which the country was heading. In short, here you have in a nutshell Khrushchev's political strategy, and later on that of Gorbachev. It is also worth it for me to add here that Cohen's book on Bukharin played a pretty sizable role in the Soviet Union. When Gorbachev came to power, Cohen was often invited to Russia. He lauded Gorbachev and his policies. More significantly, in the conclusion of his book on Bukharin, he states that if reformists rose to power in the Soviet Union and carried out the intentions of Bukharin, the situation in the country would have been totally different. There is a definite link between Cohen's way of defending Bukharin from 1935 to 1936 and what we have recently seen on a grand scale through Gorbachev's policies carried out until the very end of his term. The fourth point on Bukharin. He was sent by the party to France in March 1936, I believe, in order to purchase the archives of Marx and Engels, which were in the hands of some social democrats and Russian Mensheviks in Paris. Upon his arrival, Bukharin proceeded to negotiate with one of the Menshevik leaders, Nikolaevsky. Well, to be confronted with the term social democracy and Menshevik in the 1930s for a true communist eliminated any margin of doubt in terms of who was really being spoken to. Understand that during this time, social democracy not only was defending capitalism, but colonialism as well. Think of France, Belgium, etc. Furthermore, a great quantity of social democrats maintained close ties with the fascists during the 1930s. Take the president of our Belgian Socialist Party, for example, Henri de Man, who later on had his hour of rightist glory in 1935 with the Labour Plan which was a mass mobilization of hundreds of Belgian workers who proclaimed that this plan was building the road towards socialism. This same demand became an outright fascist in 1940. In France, basically all the socialist members of parliament voted for the Vichy fascist regime. This is the very same social democracy that Bukharin would become acquainted with in Paris, except that Menshevik social democracy was even more so counter-revolutionary because they allied and fought alongside French, English, and Czech forces during the Russian Civil War. Nikolaevsky made some reports of his discussions with Bukharin, and I shall mention only the most essential points. First off, speaking of Bukharin, he wrote, quote, He was tired. 
he had acquired a great pessimism and had lost the will to live, end quote. Secondly, he notes that, quote, I was familiar with the party order preventing communists from talking to non-members about internal party affairs, so I did not broach the subject. However, we did have several conversations about the internal situation of the party. Bukharin wanted to talk. End quote. Already we are faced with a strange kind of Bolshevik. Another individual recommended that he, quote, remain abroad and found an opposition newspaper, end quote. Bukharin did not deny the proposal, yet stated that he could not live outside of Russia. At a different meeting with Nikolaevsky in Copenhagen, Bukharin was noted as saying, Trotsky is also currently in Oslo. Are we not going to see him? I always had the greatest respect for him. Bukharin also reportedly asked Nikolaevsky if he could see the anti-communist opposition bulletins that had been circulating abroad, and the latter accordingly brought him all that he had access to. In light of this, Bukharin began to speak about how discussions were arising about a second party. Nikolaevsky explicitly stated that Bukharin was making declarations about the necessity of another party besides the Communist Party. He further noted that he and Bukharin had extensively discussed how in the Soviet Union, the dictatorship of a new class was emerging. This final subject in particular is one that the Mensheviks had already been expounding upon in 1917, that the Bolshevik quote-unquote coup d'etat, as they called it, was counter-revolutionary, which was going to implement a dictatorship and a new aristocracy. You can find statements like this word-for-word word coming out of the mouths of those who were fighting on the side of the English and the Tsar during the Civil War. Bukharin rehashes this idea of a new aristocracy already by 1936. In the end, Nikolaevsky noted that Bukharin told him that he wrote the greatest portion of the 1936 Constitution, and that he wrote it in such a way that, quote, it was a good framework for the pacific transfer from the dictatorship of one party to a real popular democracy, end quote. From all of this, Nikolaevsky's conclusion was that Bukharin was closer to social democracy than to communism. In this assessment, we cannot say that he was wrong. That was the fourth point on Bukharin, so as to better show you his ideology and his point of view in 1936. Now for the fifth point. This will primarily pull from an extremely interesting book, in fact probably the most interesting book I know about the Soviet Union. The book is by Tokiev, Comrade X. Tokiev was a member of a clandestine anti-communist organization operating inside the party. In the book, Tokiev makes no secret of his anti-communism. At one point, he says that the greatest democracy in the world during the 1930s was Britain. Well, in the 1930s, the British Empire was the main global empire, the largest colonial state, and Churchill was already the greatest criminal of the century, who had been in the service since the beginning of the century. He played an active part in perpetuating the wars in South Africa, India, Iraq, Kenya. The history of British colonialism is the main history of the European colonial saga. This same Tokiev notes in his book that the best relations his organization had were those with Bukharin. He states, quote, Bukharin envisaged several parties and even nationalist parties in the Soviet Union. By 1936, Bukharin was approaching the social democratic standpoint of the left-wing socialists of the West, end quote. Tokiev further reveals that in Piotrkov's trial, Radek spoke out about Bukharin's involvement in sabotage and the anti-Soviet clandestine organization. Well, the boss of this organization, a member of the Central Committee since the 1930s and general of the army, 
went to go see Bukharin and explain that after Radek's declaration, Bukharin was to be arrested in the coming weeks. Furthermore, under these pressing circumstances, this unknown individual proposed to Bukharin a safe escape route through which he would be able to flee abroad. What exactly was the motivation behind such a preposition? The answer is found on page 68 of Comrade X. Quote, we made this proposition because it would be a deadly blow if the security apparatus turned Bukharin at his trial into another Kamenev, Zinoviev, or Radek, because the very idea of an opposition would have been discredited forever throughout the Soviet Union. End quote. In other words, since people like Zinoviev and Kamenev had already admitted everything that had been exposed, if someone as prestigious as Bukharin were now to admit everything to the courthouse, a fatal blow would be dealt to the opposition. This is rather interesting. Tokiev defends Bukharin for their own project, and in order to avoid a moral and political defeat for the opposition as a whole, anti-communist opposition included. Sixth point on the subject of Bukharin with regards to his trial. There are several interesting aspects. First off, everyone is in agreement that Bukharin was not mistreated or tortured, etc. Even those who say just about anything about the Moscow trials never claim this. Bukharin was far too influential a figure for this, and he had the opportunity to freely speak before the court so he could say whatever he wanted. Those who had the opportunity to witness firsthand his speeches and remarks before the court refute at least half to three-fourths of the various accusations which are leveraged. What is even more interesting is what we find out when we examine the transcripts from Bukharin's trial. At least twice during the trial, Bukharin was questioned about the happenings of the year 1918, after the Brest-Litovsk peace. Remember that imperialist Germany invaded the Soviet Union and seized a fairly large piece of land. In light of the fact that a cohesive Red Army did not yet exist, the soldiers began to flee, and Lenin thus decided that any kind of peace had to be resolutely accepted because the nascent country was in no position to be able to defend itself. These are the circumstances under which the Brest-Litovsk peace was established. All the bourgeois and petty bourgeois elements were evidently against it, as they claimed that it was necessary to continue the war. However, Lenin knew very well that the workers and peasants no longer had the morale or energy to continue an unjust war, and that demoralization and disorganization in the country was widespread. It was necessary to establish a new foundation on which the Soviet peoples could get back on their feet. Well, in this very same year, 1918, Bukharin stated that there was a discussion between him and the left communists among the socialist revolutionaries to put a stop to Lenin, Stalin, and Sverdlov, the three leading Bolshevik elements at the time, and create an entirely new government. At this time, Bukharin and Trotsky were united in their opposition to the peace at Brest-Litovsk, Another witness at the trial came forth and explained that the socialist revolutionaries had every intention after having stopped Lenin to kill him, but Bukharin interjected claiming that there was no question that there were many people who were arrested but not killed, which never in a million years anyone ever thought of killing, etc. Yet what is important to underline here is that Bukharin essentially admitted that during the crisis engendered by the peace at Brest-Litovsk, he was in agreement with the socialist revolutionaries to arrest Lenin and the others. This point is extremely interesting and important in the context of the fascist war that was on the horizon before the Soviet Union. I already mentioned that the Mensheviks, Nikolaevsky included, said that Bukharin was a finished man, a demoralized man, who no longer had any desire to fight back or to even live. 
Well, returning back to Tokiev's book, he notes how in 1939, the organization which he was a part of was discussing plans for a potential coup d'etat and to assassinate Stalin if war broke out. Quote, Schmidt, a member of the Vorshilov Leningrad Military Academy, regretted a lost opportunity. Had we moved at the time of the trial of Bukharin, the peasants would have risen in his name. Now we had no one of his stature to inspire the people. End quote. The premise here is quite fascinating. These military men are discussing a coup d'etat in the event of war. Yet they acknowledged that a presentable and acceptable individual was necessary for the masses to rally around. But after Bukharin, they claimed that there was no longer anyone suitable for such a role. Though this also means that if Bukharin were still there, with all the political positions that he had held and the past he possessed, it is quite clear that these conspirators would have had much more luck risking their coup d'etat. Bukharin served as someone whom the conspirators knew the political positions of, and someone who they had established political ties to, so there is no question that the possibility of this coup being successful would have been markedly better had Bukharin not been sentenced to death. This becomes even more clear when you see that their principal argument in 1939 for why the coup was no longer possible was that there remained no other adequate individuals. I strongly feel that this final point merits thorough reflection, because Bukharin in any case probably no longer even had the strength to lead a counter-revolution himself. When you really look at his positions, it is no secret that this was a finished man, who no longer believed in the struggles, had social democratic positions, and no longer struggled himself. But in the greater context of the Soviet Union, it was obvious that there were other anti-communist and conspiratorial groups who had the strength and intended on carrying out a coup. In such a context, we must not only limit ourselves to seeing Bukharin as this isolated, doomed man who in and of himself may not have been a danger, but rather, it was what he represented that was a lethal danger to the Soviet Union in a very particular situation at this time. And you will see further in Tokiev's book that even on the very day when the Germans attacked the Soviet Union, there was still discussion being had on whether the coup itself was still a possibility. Do not forget that these were high-ranking officers in the army, not just any ordinary soldiers. In this case, you can begin to feel the harsh character of the class struggle in the army and in the party in which Bukharin played an extremely important role. There you have all that concerns Bukharin. But while we were on the subject of Tokiev and the military men, this takes us to our final area of concern. The fourth main counter-revolutionary group that was arrested and executed was the military circle associated with Tukhachevsky in May 1937. As a matter of fact, it was this trial of these military men that really triggered the quote-unquote Great Purge in the Soviet Union, because if enemies had really infiltrated into the army, the situation for the Soviet Union was very bleak. There was no doubts that a war within the next one to four years was inevitable. So the true panic that seized the party and the regime really started with the military affair. The purge proper got off the ground after its discovery. What kind of elements existed in terms of anti-communist military conspiracy in the Soviet Union during the 1930s? First off, there are multiple testimonies from people who defected to the West who have spoken about this. There is a rather well-known book, a mediocre book, but for our purposes it serves us well, by Kravitsky. He was an anti-communist who propagated many lies about Stalin. But the most significant thing is that according to him, there truly was a conspiracy revolving around Tukhachevsky. In a book where he rehashes next to all the noise and rumors against Stalin, he definitely states that there existed such a conspiracy. 
Secondly, there's another book, which unfortunately is only available in Russian, that J. Archgetty cites, written by a military man known as Likchev. He was an officer in Siberia, and incidentally, he wrote a book about this Tukhachevsky conspiracy, of which he was also a part. We are still in the process of looking for this book, but currently, we still not have found a copy. However, if we do come across it, we will translate the important sections with the help of our comrades who can read Russian. The third testimony is that of Tokiev. His boss, he does not tell us the actual name, just Comrade X, was a member of the Central Committee and a Red Army General. In his book, Tokiev talks about how there were ten generals or superior officers in the army who were members of his anti-communist clandestine organization. Three of these individuals were officers who were shot alongside Tukhachevsky. These were precisely the second, third, and fourth highest-ranking individuals of the organization. But Comrade X managed to somehow escape, evading being discovered. By the end of his book, Tokiev states that by 1938, the situation his group found itself in was extremely catastrophic and desperate, also noting that almost all of the men surrounding Comrade X disappeared during the purges. In other words, the military anti-communist organizations received significant blows during the Tukhachevsky affair. The next point you can find in Churchill's memoirs, which he wrote after the war, meaning memoirs of the Cold War, so the anti-communism is even more fierce. He speaks about the Tukhachevsky affair and notes that there truly was German infiltration in the Soviet armed forces, that with very brutal methods Stalin put an end to it and says the following verbatim, quote, Hitler perfectly understood the message. A ruthless purge is without a doubt useful in cleaning out the political and economic arenas. The Russian army purged its pro-German elements, and its military prowess painfully suffered. Hitler read the events very clearly. End quote. Basically, Churchill is saying that Hitler definitely understood the significance that the blow from this purge had for Germany. But, Churchill continues, as far as I know, the British and French governments were not as well informed about what actually happened. For Mr. Chamberlain and the general staff of the British and French states, the 1937 purge appeared above all as an episode of infighting, tearing up of the Russian army from the interior. End quote. So, Churchill admits that there was a German infiltration. Hitler wholly understood the implication of the purge, but the Allies at this time did not totally understand what really happened. It is also worth noting that during the time of the purge, Churchill still was interested in joining a united front with the Soviet Union because he understood very well that England itself was not in a place to defend itself alone against Nazi Germany. There are other diplomats who made declarations similar to those of Churchill, and it can also be said that the European bourgeoisie, which was not necessarily pro-fascist, also defended the same point of view. In other words, those like Chamberlain who were pro-fascist or were looking for a compromise with the fascists held contrary positions, that the purge was merely a struggle between communists in which Stalin was getting rid of his adversaries. But those who were anti-fascist understood what really occurred. The former group did not even have any desire to understand because they were aiming for a reconciliation and common political agenda with the German fascists. Now for the next point on the Tukhachevsky affair, which is also quite interesting. When the war broke out, it was observed that a certain number of high-ranking Soviet officers actually defected to Hitler's side. Even in spite of the purges, which in particular targeted those who were pro-German, when the fascists invaded the Soviet Union, there was a small number of high-ranking Red Army officers who defected to the German side. The most well-known of this peculiar group is General Vlasov. 
In 1990, the Soviet press published an article almost glorifying Vlasov, in which it stated, These pages of history did not seem to be worth revising. Traitors are traitors, but after reading Gulag Archipelago, it became necessary to answer these questions. Who was General Vlasov? What was his goal in fighting the liberating Soviet army? This is very much like here in Belgium, how it was thought that infamous Nazi collaborator Leon Degrel's era was not one that necessitated revision. Yet an article in a similar vein appeared rehabilitating him and lionizing what he did in service of quote-unquote humanity, and for Belgium in particular. In any case, what I really intend to point out is that this Soviet article was written by a German army historian. This very historian compiled a list of all the major generals, brigade commissars, colonels, captains, and commanders from the Red Army who defected to the Hitlerians. His work gives us an ideal indication of what we are dealing with. Vlasov also made a declaration to the Russian people, and what is notable is that his criticisms of Stalin and his regime are basically identical to those made by Trotsky, the Social Democrats, and all the other antagonistic forces that we have discussed at length this evening. Before we move further, though, it is necessary to understand that this Vlasov was not just anybody, but rather the second highest-ranking general involved with the defense of Moscow in 1941. After organizing this operation, he was arrested by the Germans and it was in one of those concentration camps that he made the decision to defect to their side. Vlasov went one step further by writing a declaration pleading to the Russian people to ally with the Nazis in their fight against communism. Particularly interesting, though, is his exact justification for his defection. Quote, I saw that the war was in the process of being lost for two reasons due to the refusal of the Russian people to defend Bolshevik power and the violent system that had been created, and also due to the irresponsible management of the army, end quote. In other words, for Vlasov, the war had already been lost. The Russian people did not want to defend socialism, and they also did not want to defend the irresponsible leadership. This is what is known as defeatist propaganda, and this propaganda, be it in France or Belgium, was systematically organized by the Germans. These notions that defeat was inevitable as a result of the German army's obvious superiority. Psychological warfare was employed on a grand scale during the Second World War, manifestly seen through these defeatist currents organized by fascists in all the European countries, and Vlasov only proves this word for word in his declaration. The reality of the matter is that during the Second World War, many of these generals were professors at the military academies. The fact that varying fascistic sympathies prevailed makes the matter magnitudes more severe because we are not talking about any plain foot soldiers here, but instead high-ranking officials who are educating and therefore influencing the students at these military academies. Thus, even after a purge which was already of a draconian magnitude, this reality was still observed. All this should concretely demonstrate the true force of the defeatist pro-German currents, which, if carried through, would have led to the overthrow of the socialist regime and to capitulation before Hitler and Germany. At this time, I would like to elaborate on a final point regarding the military affair, as this point also is one often called a Stalinist falsification and the like. To reflect upon this point, one thing in particular is very interesting. 
I believe you are all aware that the French general Vagand, who was in charge of bombing the Baku oil fields, wrote a book in 1940, saying that the French army was the first in Europe to have been in a position to fight off the Red Army in 2.5 weeks, and then, in another few weeks, also finish off the Germans. For some further context, the French intended on attacking the Soviet Union through the north, via Finland, and in the south, by way of Syria. In any case, all this should expose the sheer delirium that was present within the French army, and it is no coincidence that the French at the time were perhaps the most chauvinistic people in Europe. Their experience fighting off the Germans during the First World War inspired heavy anti-German sentiment, and it was Pétain who led the victory over the Germans. Nevertheless, when the new war against Germany and France broke out, Hitler finished off the French army in a mere two weeks, and all the heads of the army surrendered and collaborated with him. Pétain himself, the victor at Verdun, became the principal Nazi collaborator, the army's number two, Vagond, became the Vichy Minister of Defense, and the army's number three, General Darlan, became State Secretary of the Navy. We can say without hesitation that all the high-ranking officials in the French army became pro-fascist. Yet in France, they still proclaimed that the Moscow trials against Tukhachevsky was something really fantastical. That over there it was all Stalinist falsifications. There certainly were no military men in the Soviet Union who had any intention of collaborating with the Nazis. These people who propagate this kind of propaganda day after day either forget or make it seem like they forget that they live in a country in which all the military men defected to Hitler's side. Hitler, who was preparing for war, was indeed engaged in a concentrated effort to infiltrate the army. So if he was doing it in France, you can be certain that he was doing it with ten times intensity in the Soviet Union, since he knew very well that in the latter, a serious battle would be waged to prevent this from happening. Furthermore, we must not forget that part of the Red Army was made up of German officers. After Germany's defeat during the First World War, they were practically the only country during the 1920s that had good relations with the Soviet Union. So in an exchange of services and resources, they trained Soviet citizens who would go on to serve in the Red Army. During this period, the Soviet Union had much more contact with the Germans than the French or the English. So, later on, the Germans' means of infiltrating and recruiting within the Soviet armed forces was a hundred times greater than what they were capable of doing in other Western countries. That is all in terms of what we have concerning the final trial and stage of this purge in the Soviet Union. I now arrive at the conclusion, which shall be brief. Getty admirably explains in his book that the purge from 1937 to 1938 in reality was the convergence of two very different currents in the 1930s. First off, there was the struggle being waged against bureaucracy in the party, something that had been taking place already for about 10 years. Getty reveals that the provincial leaders who had the party apparatus at their fingertips were essentially invincible. Most of the people that occupied these positions had been there since as far back as the 1920s, so especially in light of all the mismanagement that had historically plagued these regions, the purge of 1937 represented a sort of, quote, populist terror waged against bureaucracy and against these corrupt officials. It was an initiative carried out, of course, from above under the direction of Stalin, but also from below. So these two forces united in a struggle to eliminate a certain section of the party. The second of the two very different motivations for the 1937 to 1938 purge was the necessity to rid the party of infiltrators and German secret agents. 
For instance, in the western region of the Soviet Union, the head of the military was Uborovich, who was linked to Tukhachevsky and eventually shot alongside him. But, in any event, the main people in charge of the western province were Romyanchev and Uborovich, both of whom were done away with during the 1937-1938 purge. These two men are a perfect microcosm of the general two-current trend that we outlined, because while Uborovich was involved with the Tukhachevsky affair and German infiltration in the army, Romyanchev was one of these bureaucratic provincial leaders who had already been receiving criticism from the rank and file in this province for several years. More broadly, these two very different currents still managed to succeed in the common goal of removing the party of hostile counter-revolutionary forces. The purge itself was decided by a piece of legislation on July 2, 1937, aimed principally at spies, anti-Soviet elements, standard criminals, and counter-revolutionaries. All these individuals comprised the first category, whose fate was death. As for the second category, they were to be sent off to Siberia. Commissions were established in all units composed of three individuals, a party leader, a prosecutor, and a head of security. Thus, the cases were examined by these troikas on the basis of the indications as outlined by the purge. In anticipation for the coming war, there was quotas set for all the various categories of individuals to be purged. More broadly, the purge quota set for the party as a whole was 75,000. The Moscow News published some documents from the Central Committee in which reports from almost all provinces were included, stipulating that the numbers assigned to them were not enough. In all these provinces, there were certain people in charge of carrying out the purging, who in response claimed that, according to the criteria, there were more counter-revolutionaries and criminals that needed to be eliminated than these given instructions had permitted. To put things into perspective, Belgium purged only 4,000 individuals whom they were suspicious of fascist sympathies. As we know, in Belgium, and the same goes for the Soviet Union, this would be much too little. An American wrote a book about the ongoing World War in 1943, and I did not get the exact citation for this evening, but he spoke about the burden of the war. Of course, the Soviet Union bore the greatest amount of this burden during the war, but he notes how if the Soviets had dealt with the fascists in their country as had the French, the Belgians, and the others, fascism would have already dominated Europe before the end of 1941. The Americans were already well aware of this in 1943. In any case, the author of the book says something like, quote, It is extremely regrettable that we did not do some shooting in Belgium and in France. End quote. In other words, the Americans understood that if Belgium or France had really wanted to prepare for a resistance, which they did not do, draconian measures would have had to be taken against the elements that were known to be of service to Germany. When I say that the 4,000 number would have been surpassed, just look at the reality at this time. Looking at France, all the bourgeoisie and all the highest ranks of the army collaborated with the fascists. And we are not even talking about all the actual Nazi elements. Furthermore, take Belgium where Nazi leaders were arrested, they were transported to France, and they simply came back. All the most well-known fascist leaders were arrested on a certain May 10th. They were put on a train, they left, and they returned. However, these fascists were much more numerous in these parts of Western Europe than in the Soviet Union. The third point in our conclusion, which is noted in almost all the books on the matter, is that the 1937-1938 purge was carried out by an apparatus that was itself very deficient. For example, 
A certain Colonel Kushner was arrested in Minsk, transported via train to Moscow, and there he requested to go to work in the military academy and was granted a position as a professor. Grigorenko, a well-known rightist general who defected to the West, stated that to escape the purge is suffice to simply relocate to another country. In other words, even though this purge was overall well done, at the same time it was obvious that certain party structures and the actual control that they had over the situation was very deficient, the first kind of deficiency. The other deficiency was that the purge was quickly hijacked. As soon as the signal to start was given, certain elements of the party purged people that directly surrounded them just to prove that they were being vigilant, and further to not be struck down themselves. In other words, some things were taking place in the spirit of anarchy. Getty at one point cites a guy who stated that, quote, Our approach was to expel as many people as possible from the party, to create the maximum amount of discontentment, and thus increase the number of nonpartisans, end quote. In other words, this was a technique to increase dissident sympathies and create a stronger opposition. The fourth point that I want to bring up is that the criticisms about how the purge was being carried out were made by Stalin, already starting in October 1937, and were repeated in December 1937. By January 1938, the Central Committee convened for a special meeting and drafted a resolution criticizing the way in which the purge had been carried out for the past six months, noting that certain elements in the party existed that were attempting to protect themselves by unjustly purging other cadres. They also criticized the careerists who were trying to climb the ranks of the party by making false accusations against higher-ranking party members whose positions they had their eyes on. Another interesting point is that this resolution also pointed out that it was in the interest of the German agents who infiltrated into the party to take the approach of purging the maximum amount of dedicated communists from the party. In other words, there were many cases where party members were being expelled without any kind of verification or leads, and this kind of attitude was determined as itself criminal. All this discussion was taking place at the highest level already in January 1938, and the party could not even avoid this because its apparatus and the ongoing interior struggles were so intense. At the same time, the party knew that above all, it was necessary to purge to some extent. So it was up to them to outline instructions for the purging while being aware of the fact that with the apparatus they possessed, the purge would be characterized by the concrete state that this apparatus was in. In other words, an imperfect, deficient one. So we all see the difficulties with which they had to carry out this struggle. Lastly, in 1938, there was a declaration delivered by Stalin in 1937 to put an end to the purge in which he stated the following. Quote, the general operations to crush and destroy enemy elements conducted by the NKVD in 1937 to 1938, during which investigation and hearing procedures were simplified, showed numerous and grave defects in the work of the NKVD and prosecutors. Furthermore, enemies of the people and foreign secret service spies penetrated the NKVD, both at the local and central level. They tried by all means to disrupt investigations. Agents consciously deformed Soviet laws, conducted massive and unjustified arrests, and at the same time protected their acolytes, particularly those who had infiltrated the NKVD. 
The completely unacceptable defects observed in the work of the NKVD and the prosecutors were only possible because enemies of the people had infiltrated themselves in the NKVD and prosecutor offices. Used every possible method to separate the work of the NKVD and prosecutors from party organs, to avoid party control and leadership, and to facilitate for themselves and for their acolytes the continuation of their anti-Soviet activities. The Council of People's Commissars and the Central Committee of the CPSUB resolves 1. To prohibit the NKVD and prosecutors from conducting any massive arrest or deportation operation. The CPC and the CC of the CPSUB warn all NKVD and prosecutor office employees that the slightest deviation from Soviet laws and from party and government directives by any employee, whoever that person might be, will result in severe legal proceedings. End quote. It was with this very decision that Yezov was removed from his post as head of the NKVD and then shot succeeded by Beria, under whom many of the previous cases were handled and rectified. As far as the figures are concerned, 278,818 individuals were expelled from the party from 1937 to 1938. Here, we are only talking about expulsions from the party, yet keep in mind that others were deported, and some even shot, although those who filed appeals most likely were not shot. In any case, this number of expulsions was the weakest out of the 1930s as a whole. So, in the quote-unquote Great Purge, less people were expelled from the party than before. However, in this case, it was cadres who were purged, making this purge markedly different from the others in which the rank and file and those who were not even fit to be considered communist were concerned. While from 1937 to 1938 there were 278,818 expulsions, there were also 154,933 appeals filed by August 1938. Of these appeals, 85,273 of them were examined, of which 54% were readmitted. These appeals and reintegration into the party were directed principally by Beria. In one of his books, Conquest, the principal ideologue of the bourgeoisie, claimed that during the 1937 to 1938 purge, there were between 7 and 9 million arrests. Getty and Ritterspohn went and verified his sources and found that they originated an estimation from, quote, ex-prisoners who assert that between 4 and 5.5% of the Soviet population were incarcerated or deported during those years, end quote. In other words... It is all this fabrication. How could a person in one of these camps have possibly estimated the average effect that the purge had on a countrywide scale? Getty also cites Brzezinski, the chief of the CIA, remarking that, quote, lacking evidence, all estimates are equally worthless, and it is hard to disagree with Brzezinski's observation that it is impossible to make any estimates without erring in the hundreds of thousands or even millions, end quote. And Brzezinski represents the most extreme elements of the far right. The only numbers that are verified and appropriately sourced are the ones that we mentioned. The 278,818 expulsions, the 154,933 total filed appeals, and 85,273 examined appeals, 54% of which were accepted. I will now read the conclusion that Getty provides. Quote, the evidence suggests that Izovshchina, 
which is what most people really mean by the great purges, should be redefined. It was not the result of a petrified bureaucracy stamping out dissent and annihilating the old radical revolutionaries. In fact, it may have been just the opposite. It is not inconsistent with the evidence to argue that Izovshchina was rather a radical, even hysterical reaction to bureaucracy. The entrenched officeholders were destroyed from above and below in a chaotic wave of voluntarism and revolutionary puritanism. End quote. We must keep in mind that the person speaking here is a bourgeois, anti-communist professor, yet nonetheless, after having studied all the minute details of the purges, this was his conclusion. In this manner, we have now been able to discuss at length a few crucial points concerning the purges. We are in the process of putting out some rather in-depth work about the Stalin era, collectivization, the purges, the war, all the aspects of the period. This is above all an effort for the comrades in the third world who are struggling in conditions a thousand times more difficult than our own. And we must not forget this point, whether in Ethiopia or the Philippines, the bourgeoisie's propaganda campaign on Stalin and revolutionary history in general is virtually identical to what we are familiar with here in Belgium. As we have said, however, to defend oneself and one's position on these matters in the third world is a thousand times more difficult because there is neither the necessary documents nor the time to devote oneself to this. With all the comparatively plentiful resources we have in libraries, archives, and such here in the West, it is our duty to make this material available especially to comrades in the category that we have mentioned. In any case, I will presently describe the conclusion of the purges that we have discussed today. The purges themselves, as we know, are associated with the period of 1934 to 1938. Yet in reality, they began after the Tukhachevsky affair in June 1937. In July, the law was passed formally, starting them, and it lasted up until November 1938, with the declaration that I read. In general, it can be said that the pro-German, pro-fascist, and counter-revolutionary elements were heavily beaten down during this time, and it was only in the Soviet Union that such elements experienced a defeat of such magnitude. Furthermore, the purges were accomplished by a mobilization in every village and every factory. I brought up Scott's book about his experience at Magnitogorsk. Not only did he observe sabotage there, but he further noted how the workers were discussing topics such as fascism and infiltration on a daily basis. There were even plays written about Hitler. All this is to point out that the education of the masses at this time was ensured like nowhere else in the world. For these two reasons, firstly, a popular anti-fascist education accompanied by defense preparation for the entire population, and secondly, the purging of counter-revolutionaries and Germans. The Soviet Union was truly prepared to confront the Nazis. This past weekend, I was in London, where they have established a Stalin Society. They did a showing of a film from the American Army, made in 1943 and distributed by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. This was a propaganda film from the American Army, one of four films, and it was called, quote, The Battle for Russia, end quote. In this film, they actually showed the extraordinary preparation for war that was going on in the Soviet Union and the heroic fighting that the Soviet people, the peasants, and workers were carrying out. The Battle of Stalingrad and the Battle of Leningrad. It was truly fascinating to watch this film because you see how the American bourgeoisie, worse, 
the American army, was obligated to speak about the Soviet Union in the midst of war. Of course, it was the Soviets who had to endure the most blows in a war in which the Americans were involved, so it was necessary for them to recognize the merits of the Soviet Union from a defensive point of view. More significantly, they even went so far as to recognize things that the Soviet Union was doing that nobody else in the world had yet accomplished. And when you watch the film, you will find it absolutely impressive. When the German army pours into the country, none of it is left by the end. And the Soviets themselves went out of their way to systematically destroy everything that could be of service to the Germans. It was really total war. And you see it. Not only that, but you see all the fierce will to defend each and every meter of the Soviet territory. In any case, all this that the Americans were forced to recognize in the middle of the war was only possible due to the purges and the accompanying anti-fascist condition of the entire population. In the film, you also notice that women, children, the elderly, everyone participated not only in the anti-fascist resistance, but in a fight to the death. The Soviets suffered roughly 27 million deaths during the war. As everyone went to the battlefields, the motto was, quote, for the Soviet motherland, for Stalin, end quote. We can be absolutely sure that in light of the capitalist crimes currently being committed in the Soviet Union, the Bolsheviks, sooner or later, will resume a new revolutionary struggle. Moreover, this future struggle will undoubtedly be led by this very motto that we have just mentioned for the Soviet motherland and for Stalin. Thank you. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.